Good instant response is 80% preparation and preparing, 10% actually responding, and 10% bourbon after the, the everything settles down. Yeah, it might be uh, even a little more bourbon. You know, we might go a little over that 100%. Well, that's mark. if you don't spend 80% of your time doing preparedness. The, the inverse is more true. So we want to give the last time you spend on. But 20% yeah. of that is drinking bourbon. Chase, it's the last episode Woo. of the season. Yeah, I shouldn't. I shouldn't say the last episode. People will think we're we're quitting. Not the last episode ever, and it's also not the <laughs> last episode by Doctor Dre and Snoop Dogg. But no, that's this the next is, episode. Is... Shit, never mind. Oh man, ruining your own jokes on the, la- know, the last episode. Ruining of the season. my own references. <laughs> that's a weird superpower to be bad at. All right, so this is episode ten for season one, and. What a cybersecurity week we've had. It has been bonkers. What we're going to talk about today is the Casilla VSA ransomware situation. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, we discuss uh, supply chain attacks. And then a couple weeks after we drop that episode, something actually happens that would have been relevant to, for us to talk about during that <laughs> uh, episode. To be fair, we still had relevant stuff to talk during that episode as well, because supply chain is the, the hotness. Oh, yeah. But some honorable mentions that are going on as well are the uh, print nightmare vulnerability that is a print spooler vulnerability that is remote code execution in a trusted microsoft environment and that is disgusting a little bit so make sure y'all keep an eye on cybersecurity news and patch stuff quickly and appropriately because world's coming hard and fast right now or make our jobs Um, a lot easier and don't patch anything ever or do that and i don't I still don't advise that. I would rather my job be harder. Yeah. Oh, no, I agree 100%. <laughs> but it'd make our job easier. But uh, our guest's job a lot much harder. Uh, a lot much harder? Oh, yeah. Much more harder. Much, a much lot, harder. A lot more harder. Much more difficult. H- harder times. <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> I'm trying my best, man. Anyways, so we thought to talk about the Casilla stuff would be the most interesting. We talked about it from an instant response perspective. And no one else could do that justice but our own Brian O'Hara. Hey there, Brian. Welcome back. Thanks, guys. Um, it's an unfortunate situation to be back on, but it, definitely an interesting thing. We had to stop ourselves before the show because we started talking about Casilla already because it is a, it's a whole micro episode of just chaos theater going on right now. It's been going on for, I think, July 2nd is when an official announcement was made by the Casilla team, and naturally that falls on a major holiday here in the United States, which just makes the incident response stuff even harder to do. Yeah, and also to note, it was also a holiday in Canada, I believe. It had international coverage. It wasn't just a U.S. thing, which made that even more of a significant time to deploy. Right. Wasn't Isn't Casilla, I think, headquartered in Dublin? They have a U.S. headquarters in Miami. Yeah. But you're right, this is not just a U.S. problem, but speaking from a U.S. perspective, I know that the U.S. incident responders are not happy having to get called in on, on a holiday weekend. But, and before we go too far into this, I do want to stress that this is still an ongoing situation, even today. We are, what, a week and a half out from the second, and news is still developing, information is still coming out, and that's probably going to continue for the rest of the month, if not longer. Because sometimes information around these instances are slow rolling, updating. It's like a flash fire, right? Everything kicks off real quick, but then the rest of the burn is very slow and very confusing. And we don't know what's happening. 
Uh, so that's kind of what we've got going on right now. Yeah, there's also, uh, it, it's kind of a domino effect. You, you start doing one thing, and then it will uncover other issues or lead to the next thing. So yeah, I imagine this will be going on for a little bit. Yeah. Um, we'll be getting more information, more updates. Uh, we'll see if their patching works. They were supposed to have implemented patches this week, but as you brought up with the uh, print nightmare situation, they've tried to patch that one a couple times now with no avail. <laughs> so let's dig into it right out of the gate. So... I guess, quick overview, and Brian, correct me if I get any of this wrong, which I probably will because this whole thing is confusing, but Kaseya is a kind of like a network monitoring and scale management tool. For those of you who are actually in the IT industry, it's kind of akin to like a SolarWinds tool. It's, a, I think, a direct competitor of SolarWinds. And good thing SolarWinds has had any issues of their own in the past. <laughs> Yeah, I I can't uh, just solar winds. <laughs> Anyways, there's that is probably a bigger underlying aspect of these sort of scaling solutions that you know the the larger the scale that you have to provide for and cover, the greater the propensity of significant security flaws just because of the scale. I don't know if there's actually anything any data that backs this up. I guess in our industry, it often seems to be the case that, you know, as you increase your scale, as you increase your scope, you decrease the security. And it's not on purpose or anything like that, but it's just you, as your scope gets bigger, there's more to cover, there's more to protect, and there's more that you have to be right about. And significant tools that are spread across these large environments are indicative of that problem. They scale quickly, they cover a lot, they have to do a lot. But that introduces a lot of room, a lot of a, a lot of field for vulnerabilities to sit in. And I think this software is a a key example of that, right? The Kaseya VSA servers are that. They they sit on these environments, they are used by MSPs or managed service providers to help manage these large networks. So they have to do things like deploying software, monitoring up downtimes, monitor network throughput and What's the other word I want? <laughs> they essentially have the keys to the kingdom, so to speak. So if an attack were to compromise these right. highly trusted, highly privileged resources, then there's going to be some very bad, probably longer term impacts from that. And to tack on to that, Chase, as well, you know, it, it. I've been reading some of the Twitter feeds that are floating around, Reddit, things like that. And a lot mm. of people have pointed out that one of the things that's a big issue with this is the fact that this is a trusted entity. So one of the pieces of this or components of this that got a lot of buzz was that the Kaseya agent required for these companies, they put out in their documentation that they requested these companies to whitelist some of their um, basically folders for their application in certain areas from the antiviruses and stuff like that, which is great. And it made the functionality good, but you pretty much opened that gaping hole for that, that system as well in that regard. Um, so you were giving more trust to those applications and that makes this an even bigger vulnerability because you do have the trust in that application for what it's actually meant to be doing. So when it's abused in the way that this Kaseya agent was, it just amplifies things even worse. You're intentionally blinding yourself to improve the functionality, but kind of to this, to this point, at what cost? I mean, everything at this scale, especially when talking about network administration and other things like that, you're essentially doing a trade-off between security and convenience for the IT staff. 
which is 100% perfectly fine. Every single organization is going to come up with against that at some point in time uh, with that choice. But if something happens to that software, it's really, really bad because of that. Yeah. The position that the these sort of software types put themselves in, like Brian was saying, it puts them in the perfect position to be these significant impact makers across these environments at large because often these are sitting at critical data centers critical networks at the edge and even in like user segments if you have a network that is actually well segmented if it's a flat network they just plop one right in the middle of the network and it has access to pretty much everything and this software is always going to exist it's always going to be prevalent in mid to large size networks it's not something that is ever really going to go away it, it's almost like a wake-up call, too, for the especially the defensive guys. When you look at this situation for the Kasei agent, as well as the SolarWinds, like you alluded to before, those are companies that I believe the industry as a whole holds to a higher standard, and they, they just have this assumption that they're doing everything that they're going to do and think that they're invulnerable. Um, so when something like this happens, you know, the reality is, is that everybody's got some sort of vulnerability and mm-hmm. you just kind of have to take that into account in, into your planning um, with any vendor that you're using. Yeah. I mean, until humans are entirely cut out of the coding process, which I don't think will ever Ugh. happen, especially because if an AI was yeah. coding something, a human would have to create the AI in the first place. There's always going to be mistakes in software in design in procedure, what have you. And that's just something that we kind of have to live with as security professionals and ensure that there's enough defense in depth and enough protections in place that these small mistakes that might get discovered one, five, 10, 15 years after they're made don't completely tank your entire network. But anyways, we, we digress. So kind of back to the, the beginning of the story where I started and then sort of <laughs> fell down my own rabbit hole. There's um, a lot of rabbit holes with this one. <laughs> Kaseya is, <laughs> oh yeah. Um, so Kaseya VSA is a network management tool slash service. And I believe Kaseya offers this tool to often MSPs or management service providers who then use the functionality of this tool to manage the networks that they are in charge of. So already you can kind of see this sort of blooming scope, right? There may only be a limited number of actual Kaseya servers out in the wild, but the services used from the Kaseya servers by these MSPs touch yeah. lots of networks. So keep that in mind as we, we talk through this story, because that's going to become kind of critical as we sort of explain the impact and the, the criticality of this, this incident. So back on July 2nd, a, I don't even know how it was identified. I don't have those details yet, but I could, I could speak to the incidents that I personally worked associated with this. Um, and basically the people just started seeing their devices getting bricked. Right. About 1230, I believe, Eastern Standard Time, everything just started going downhill real fast. <laughs> it was a it was a very well orchestrated incident. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think some of the logs that had been collected, that 1230 mark, I think at 11 a.m. Eastern Time is when they were starting to see the Kaseya VSA servers were actually beginning to deploy the malware that ended up being ransomware. So in that span between 11 a.m. and then about 1230 is when they they delivered the the payloads. And then at that 1230 mark is when they executed it and just started bricking these Vaseas, uh, VSA servers. So from there, without getting too nitty gritty into the, the details of the way that the ransomware works, and I don't remember if we've talked about ransomware on the show yet, Chase. Um, I mean, I don't think we've 
addressed it specifically in some large manner or anything like that. I, I 100% know we've mentioned it and discussed what it was in the past, uh, but right. I don't think we've ever focused in on it. So I guess just to make sure we touch on this, and I don't because I don't want to lose sort of what are the key aspects here, but ransomware is this type of malware that is used to more or less completely lock someone out of their files and their network, ideally, depending on the, the scope of the ransomware. And it does this by doing mass encryption of uh, the file systems and file shares on the network. And then usually the reason it gets the name because either a ransom note or some kind of message is posted somewhere that says, hey, if you want to get access to your files again, pay us X amount of money. Turns out with Kaseya, it ended up being a very prolific threat actor referred to as R-Evil or some people call it Revel. But I think it's just our evil, right? I actually saw a whole chain online of people arguing about that. And <laughs> apparently it stands for ransomware evil. And from what I understand, the group has some weird fascination with resident evil. So it's a homage to resident evil. So yes, I believe it's supposed to be pronounced our evil. But there, you know, of course, the security community likes to troll any of the uh, ransomware groups as much as possible. So if you want to butcher the name, feel free to. Now, is it GIF or JIF? Stop it. Just the backgrounds in the stories of some of these threat actors are bizarre sometimes. But anyways, it, a notice was posted by the Evil gang of, I think it was, a, was it 70 million is what they were looking for? Yes. So correct? this is, um. I mean, I don't know if this is the time we want to dive into it or not, but the ransom part of this in itself is kind of interesting. So they decided to post the ransom as a community ransom. So instead of locking up a company generally right. with ransomware, you know, your machine will get blocked or locked up and the actor will request the person that was impacted to actually pay that ransom to get their device encrypted. In this case, they actually posted out to have the community basically collectively either get this 70 million or have a single person do it. There's been a lot of politics associated with that, asking if there's an ethical or legal obligation for Kaseya to pay that, um, which was one of the mm -hmm. things that I wanted to bring up and chat with you guys about, see what your th thoughts are on that. But yeah, this has been kind of a, an interesting approach to the ransomware um, actual payment uh, and ransom that they're demanding. Yeah, crowdfunding ransomware is interesting. <laughs> I, I think it's a new approach to it, for sure. At least what, the most public version of this approach. Oh, for sure. It makes sense given how centralized slash decentralized this is. Centralized and that is coming out from these select few MSPs that have these Kaseya products, but decentralized in that it's affected just a ton of their clients that we don't really have great numbers mm -hmm. on how many people are exactly affected in this instance. So it could be that having that crowdsourced type thing can take advantage of that decentralized nature and try and make it so that all these different clients kind of pitch in, so to speak. So that's interesting. And this goes back to the episode we had with Carson a couple of weeks ago. This is, you know, the epitome of a supply chain attack, right? Mm -hmm. We've got someone targeting Kaseya, which provides a service or a product to hundreds of MSPs, which then service thousands of different networks. So by targeting this one aspect of this supply chain, you've now increased your affected resources by a magnitude. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think opens up the door for this sort of, what do you call it? Crowdfunding uh, ransomware, right? I don't think this would have been possible if this was anything other than a supply chain ransomware, right? Yeah. And one thing to note, especially since we're we're definitely want to keep 
those that may not be as familiar with the whole ransomware topic, but this Our Evil group actually does this as a service. I mean, this is a ransomware as a service. They they sell these packages that are able to just deploy anywhere and how they want to do it. So beyond this being a, a group that's doing it, they're also making it easier for other people to do as well. So uh, I guess where there's money, there's business, right? <laughs> okay, so I think you're right. This might be a good time to kind of tap into some of the political things you were seeing. So can you give us a rundown on that? Yeah, so I mean, like I said, the, this particular case they are demanding a community sourced you know, response. And there's a lot of people saying that because this was initially vectored through Kaseya, that Kaseya has an ethical and legal obligation to pay that 70 mil. I don't know that I necessarily agree with that. I think whenever you purchase any type of tool or anything, whether it's a, a service or whatever it may be, you, you kind of, there are certain things that you have to agree upon and certain things that you just accept, I guess, as the cost of doing business. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this is definitely one thing that was probably out without out of reach of several different um, entities in this regard. You know, as you mentioned, a layered security would have would have done a lot in this regard. There's also some other nuances that we'll probably get to later on um, as we talk about this that are kind of unique in that most of the things that you typically would say to a person if they asked you, how can I protect against ransomware were completely circumvented in this case because it was using mm -hmm. that agent to actually spread. And uh, so that that's kind of another unique aspect of it. But from the political side of things, definitely just this whole idea of community sourcing um, or crowdsourcing the decryption keys for this this ransom. You know, obviously, there's a lot of organizations that can't afford to pay a ransom. You know, it's 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 pretty much detrimental to the entire business and may completely ruin that business if if something like this happens and they don't have appropriate backup procedures. So it, it's just a it's a unique case that we haven't really seen before. The other piece to this that's kind of unique but becoming a trending topping is that the ransomware, and I'm not sure, I can't remember if this one was in that sort of thing or not, but ransomware is trending where they are, in addition to encrypting your files, they will actually export some of your data and then hold that as a sort of like a... Um, I don't even know what the word I'm looking for. Uh, um, they'll hold it yeah, over the, the company's almost. head. Yeah, collateral um, to uh, basically say, okay, well, if you don't pay us the ransom, well, you will pay us because otherwise we're going to disclose all this information. And that's becoming another trending thing as well down the political mm -hmm. line, which then gets into, okay, well, should these organizations pay? You know, there's a lot of issues with paying ransom in general because of some of the sanctions of, of the countries that are conducting this. Um, we're not supposed to be doing financial transactions with. Uh, so you have legality aspects of it. There, there's just there's so many things you can you can branch off and talk about um, in regards to the politics behind this mm -hmm. case and most of where ransomware is going these days. Yeah, I think the question of having Kaseya pay the ransom is an interesting one to think about because it would essentially establish a precedence almost if they did pay it. Now, I'm not really one to advocate ever paying the ransom. I know in some company situations, there's specific instances where it'll be way more advantageous for them to pay the ransom than to deal with the after effect of everything. But there have also been plenty of times where companies have paid the ransom and nothing was fixed at all. I don't know how our evil's exact reputation is with unencrypting things after the ransom is paid, but that's something people got to keep in mind too, is if you pay this there's still a chance, in, in some instances, a decent chance that you won't get any of your stuff back and you'll be out the ransom money. You know, I, I, I was watching a webinar. I can't remember who did it. It might have been Sands or one of them responding to this Kaseya attack. It might have been, uh, I can't remember. But basically, they were talking about how most of these ransomware groups, too, don't really have their decryption process really, you know, smooth sailing. 
And yeah. so even when you do pay your ransom, you know, they'll give you a decryptor and that decryptor may or may not work. And if it does work, it just kind of sort of works, uh, which I, I thought was kind of an interesting thing as well is that, you know, you, you, you pay and you, they try and help you, but then it doesn't really work out the way that it all was hoping to anyway. So yeah. there's always that threat that you're, you're not going to get your data back, even if you follow the steps and, and take their demands and pay them the money and all of that. So yeah, it seems like they put a lot more effort into the actual ransomware than <laughs> fixing it yeah. right which i get but still I, I think the the other aspect of that is you know attempting to not pay sort of the the other objective with that is you don't want to encourage the behavior right yeah if people will see oh hey someone can write ransomware and get a 70 million dollar payout that's just going to incentivize more ransomware so i don't know how effective the approach is at curbing further ransomware because obviously this has continued to be kind of the attack flavor of the decade at this point i think so i don't know how how functional you know the adage of don't pay is truly being but i don't know man the the whole concept of is it better to pay and get up faster or you know do you hold out and wait and see if something else happens it's just it's such a gamble no matter what you do yeah, and I mean, it's easy for us to sit here and say, oh, you shouldn't pay the ransom, which, I mean, I know I just said that, but I know that the people who are actually on the blue team at these companies are facing just usually terrible situations. And so it's a lot easier to say, don't pay the ransom when we're not actually sitting here defending against that stuff, you know? And ideally, this all comes back to your preparation stages too, you know? Yep. You should have the bare minimum and the basics covered. It's kind of a wake-up call to that. I would think with all of the trending attacks that we've been seeing lately, that that would be something that should be on the top of everybody's mind. And we certainly recommend it. You know, having those in-place disaster recovery and business continuity plans, having your backups set up and tested, not just, yeah. you know, having them backed up, mm-hmm. but actually testing and making sure that you have yeah. the process down to restore from those. You know, it's, it's, it's just really having that baseline security level taken care of can can go a world world of uh, distance on on preventing or maybe not preventing but recovering from these type of attacks are you curious about how well your organization may stand up against an apt well if you want to find out as well as improve the security of your organization contact black lantern security at blacklanternsecurity.com slash contact us and be sure to mention the podcast so a lot of this comes i think i i usually break it down into sort of three three phases, right? So you've got your preparation phase. That's where doing regular backups, backups that make sense for your data. So I, I don't ever walk into any environment and just go, all right, you need daily backups no matter what. You know, yeah, that, that would help, but there's a cost that comes to that. So you've got to do some kind of risk analysis of, you know, what is the amount of data we are comfortable with losing if we had to fall to backup? Is it a day? You know, some places it's an hour. They they cannot suffer a lot of data loss. Other places can get by with, you know, a week. Few places I would not recommend to go out as far as a month, but some places do it. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the preparation phase. And as a part of that, you need to test. Brian, you hit on it. You've got to test your backups because it's one thing to say that, oh, I've got a, you know, weekly job that writes my backups to an offsite server. Good. That's great. When was the last time you tested to bring one of those backups up? When was the last time you set, you, you checked your failover capabilities? If those don't work, or hell, if you have a corrupted 
or something corrupted or something is broken in your backup process and you don't test, you're never going to know until yeah. the day you need it. The other advantage of doing your restorations in that manner are that you get become familiar with it. It becomes an, almost, you know, it's instinctual or you just you do what you need to, because when you get in the incident of a ransomware case or any type of insert response that you're doing, everything's heated and you're, you're really just acting off of intuition more than anything. And you don't want to be trying to figure out how to restore at the time of an incident. You, you want to have all that down and documented. And by doing those, those backup restorations and, and testing your backups, uh, not only are you validating the data, but you're also validating the process. Well, even with that, you, and this is probably more for a mature organization, you know, I, at, at the root, do backups. Like no matter what your maturity level is as an organization, do backups. But as you get more mature, introduce those regular testings, you know, and then as a, the next step in that preparation phase, you know, kind of playing off of what Brian said is get your incident response, get your blue team in a position where they can regularly test incident response drills. Yes. Because either through tabletops or simulations or something along those lines, if you can get the behavior of your incident response plan ingrained in your incident responders, ingrained in your blue teamers, that is going to make your incident response in a situation where time each second is vital that it's just going to be so much better yeah i believe uh ibm's 2020 cost of a breach report uh talked about how on average companies who have a solid incident response plan regularly test it and all that save about a million dollars per breach more than companies that don't and obviously this is not going to be every case some companies are probably going to save less than a million dollars some companies will likely save a lot more if they contain a threat early on but it's a good indicator of just how crucial that is. Now, I mentioned that you've got your sort of preparation phase, and then you've got your more active or detection phase, right? So that's where you need to be setting yourself up for monitoring capabilities, for logging your key and critical areas, as well as training your blue team. This kind of goes hand in hand with the, the performing regular incident response drills, but training your blue team to know what to watch for. There's a lot of data that goes flying by, you know, I think all three of us here luckily have a, have blue team experience. So we know what it's like to be in the sock trenches when you're trying to keep up with alerts and reports and data and new IOCs coming out and new, new incident reports or global incident reports happening. That's a lot. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a ton of information. So ensuring that you have good resources available for your sock and your blue team is just as critical as you know having the tools in place for them so i guess with that in mind with the way the the kiosk uh i'm pronouncing this wrong every time <laughs> uh kaseya uh the way that they deployed the ransomware was using a trusted agent right like you said correct what steps can you take as a blue team who is specializing in monitoring and logging to protect from protect yourselves from these trusted agents is there anything that they could be doing to get ahead of this or, you know, not be completely blind to these trusted applications? So this particular case was really interesting. As I mentioned before, that agent, well, kind of taking a step back. So as I mentioned before, the Kaseya folks had actually put out guidance for how things should be configured. And unfortunately, part of that guidance included certain file paths that needed to be excluded from antivirus scans, th things like that. And pretty much it just left a gaping hole. Um, so there wasn't really too much that you could do in regards to this particularly. Now, 
as you'd mentioned, most of the people that were using this Kaseya agent were actually coming from a managed service provider. And so in the cases that we worked, we were actually fortunate because in each of the instances that we were working, that managed service provider was actually only allocated or allowed to access certain machines that were fairly well segmented from the rest of the network. Um, so I would say, uh, you know, obviously anything to do with ransomware is going to come back to segmentation is is going to be absolutely key. Limiting of attack surface is absolutely key. Uh, a lot of people will tell you to, you know, really enforce whitelisting applications. Again, that wouldn't have helped in this case because the Kaseya agent was trusted. This one was even more weird because they actually abused a DLL that was associated with Windows Defender. And I've seen a lot of jokes online of people basically saying, oh, well, my, my device isn't running Windows Defender, so I'm not vulnerable to this. And then they launched the Kaseya agent and it's still running the DLL for Windows Defender, even though they're not using Windows Defender, mainly because that's just part of the, the kernel and, and how Windows works. So this particular case is just so bizarre, um, you know, really just getting your logging and monitoring up to snuff. I mean, there's a lot of ways that you could have tracked this retroactively. If you had appropriate monitoring in there, you know, if you had Sysmon deployed where you were tracking process execution and, you know, all that real granular level of uh, monitoring on the endpoints, there was a lot that you could have detected and gone back to retro retroactively track this incident. But stopping it from the start was just so difficult because this came from that trusted supply chain entity. Mm. So I, gu I guess the way that, you know, that breaks down is it goes back to the core concept of layers of defense. Absolutely. You hit on it with the the segmenting your network, um, creating clear and defined access control systems, so that way, you know, yes, our our one server was affected by this, but it, the ransomware couldn't spread from there because we segmented it off because we knew it was used by an, an external partner, right. right? Or you have it set so it can only talk to a handful of other management servers that are designed to manage the actual environment, right? There, there are ways there to create those defense layers, but again, if you if you have these flat networks or you don't really think about a secure design when you're architecting your network, you're going to lose that out of the gate because of the unfortunate side to this is a lot of these like truly segmented networks need to be architected from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And the concept of a secure segmented network hasn't always been the the air quotes right way to do it it's you know sometime back you know when a lot of these larger companies were first setting up their computer networks it was just a matter of get it to work get everything to talk together and then we'll figure it out from there so we we've gosh, also some, um oh sorry <laughs> i was just gonna say i was just gonna say we, it. sometimes it's an impossible battle but <laughs> yeah and yeah. we've also shifted in mindset of what is a quote-unquote defensible network mm -hmm. anybody that's working in the industry now just knows the reality that a compromise is going to happen and i think many organizations are are maturing and they are realizing that that's the case and they're taking this approach to security as assuming compromise with that being yeah. said the most important thing is, yeah, we can try and prevent attacks, but when you get cases like this where it was almost just unpreventable because it was the perfect storm of setup, configuration, trust levels, it really came down to having the detection capabilities, having the visibility into your network. We, you know, we've just got to keep that 
that open site into the network, into the endpoints, into the network traffic, all is just keep as much visibility as possible because ultimately compromise will happen and being able to retroactively go back and, and scope the incident, see how many um, devices may have been impacted, whatever it may be. So, you know, that that in addition to the segmentation is so critical these days. Yeah, it, the the assumed reach model is great. It's <laughs> it's kind of eeyore sadly of you know <laughs> expect the worst sort of deal but i i think if you don't have that mindset it, it's better to have that mindset and be wrong than not have that mindset and be blindsided <laughs> well yeah it's like all these security tools defensive measures all these things all mitigate all this risk it's better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it absolutely so you know we kind of walked through the the phases of defense a little bit the the preparatory the active and then the to get to the last part is that sort of responsive phase maybe mitigative phase i don't know what the right term there is but probably responsive i'll go with that for now containment maybe there's there's a couple couple pieces to it so you have your containment eradication remediation um, and obviously your lessons learned of generating use cases for detection, maybe process flow uh, adjustments, whatever it may be. So th- there's a couple steps to that that last piece, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. It, bah, got stuck on my own tongue. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, there, there's a bunch of models out there for sort of defining these incident response. I guess at the core, this is really an incident response plan is sort of what we're talking about. And kind of to your point, it, the the concept of respond, contain, eradicate, and recover. Is that right? My gosh, yeah, it's been a minute since I've had to do response plans. It's it pretty much it, loosely, they, they're all about yeah. the same. They pretty much all follow the NIST 861, I believe, is the, the actual document for it. And we can probably put that in the yeah. show notes and validate that. But I'm pretty sure that's what it is um, for the instant response. Yeah, I had experience writing instant response plans and... Once upon a time, I had those memorized, but <laughs> oof, it's been a minute. <laughs> but right at the core, it, it's really, you know, this is the step of, okay, shit's already hit the fan. Now we've got to deal with it. And that's where your, that's where the backups, you know, having the backups actually work when you have to recover is critical. You know, having good monitoring on your environment to know where the problem is so you can narrow down and contain it also critical having steps in place for you know if this server is impacted can we shut it down do we know enough about the server you know that's where having an up-to-date and clear inventory is so important and people don't think about it or they don't think about keeping an inventory up to date of what a server is what it does is it critical who is it talked to that is information that is so important for a blue teamer so important for an incident responder because when you're in the heat of it and you have to make a split decision of, okay, do we shut down the server or do we wall it off? What do we do? What can we do? That helps add to that discussion. And instead of having to wait to find someone else who knows or having to put out the bat signal of, hey, somebody who's got information on this server, come talk to me. You know, you you can make a decision and potentially save the environment. Yeah, and God um, forbid you have uh, some servers that, are so like forgotten about that we're not even reporting in. So you don't even know that yeah. they are there to be infected or not. And that could just completely ruin any sort of containment you have. If there's servers you don't know are, that are out there are still infected. Yeah. And to, to both of your points as well, you know, this is a conversation that needs to happen before an incident happens. Um, it's something that needs to be discussed and documented 
that that response that you choose to do should not be made when you're actually in the incident. You know, it, I guess it's kind of the fog of war or whatever you want to, however you want to say it. Um, you, you kind of get cloudy vision when you're actually in these these incidents and you might not see all the, the pieces and um, aspects of things. So it's so important to have those conversations while you do have that clear judgment um, and are able to think through the risk aspect of everything. Good instant response is 80% preparation and preparing. 10% actually responding and 10% bourbon after the, the everything settles down. Yeah, it might be uh, even a little more bourbon. You know, we might go a little over that 100%. Well, that's mark. if you don't spend 80% of your time doing preparedness. The, the inverse is more true. So we want to give the less time you spend on. But 20% yeah. of that is drinking bourbon. <laughs> the less time you spend preparing is the more time you have to drink bourbon afterwards. Yeah, you also you also take into account, too, in, in those percentages that there was no sleep. I just like to put that note in there, too. <laughs> Oh yeah. Oh no. This is, when an incident happens, you're not you don't go home, you're not sleeping and you are just dealing with it until it's done, which is a sad reality, but that's, you know, kind of how it works. Hey us and you guys, and we're we're going to interject here for a second. Yeah, uh, that's right. And you better get used to it. That's that's no. That's a little aggressive. No. Yeah. <laughs> we're no, we're we just want to let you guys know this is us from the future. Uh, and by us, I mean Sam and Chase, your your host of any port on the net. And by future, we mean a day after we recorded the rest of the episode. <laughs> yeah, it's not that far in the future, just a little bit. The recording for this episode was very good and a lot of fun, but we ran a little long, and we didn't want to take any of that away from y'all. Yeah, we decided that we wanted to keep the discussion going, and we just decided to break it out into two separate parts. So I apologize for lying to you at the beginning of this episode and saying that it's the last one. Yeah, it's my greatest shame to have lied to you guys in that way. <laughs> I think we we realize about shortly after this point in the the episode discussion that we're gonna end up having to make this two parts, but didn't have the forethought to stop and actually record an outro while doing the recording. Yeah, but that would have messed with the flow, anyways. Yeah, yeah, this seems a lot more natural—a forcibly recorded outro the day after <laughs> we finish recording everything else. Yeah, I I have no recollection of most of the things we talked about in the episode <laughs> except for a lot of everything (laughs) for the most part when we record i kind of just black out and wake up with a completed podcast episode you know that's that i I feel like that is the most efficient way to record a podcast oh 100 anyways so like jay said we lied our season ender is no longer a single episode it's a two-part finale and this will be still technically the final episode of the season we just cut it into two parts keep an eye on the feed for the second part to come out the 28th Ideally, and now that I've said the actual date, we're going to not be able to get the episode on episode out on time for some ungodly reason. That has never happened to us before. So. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> I think that's, was that one my fault? I think that one was my fault. Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Anyways. It's okay. We it's should, a team effort. No one's at fault. T- no, it's, a, I can be at fault. I'm a, I'm All a right, big I'm okay kid. with that. Okay. So to, I guess... It's it's weird recording an outro for an episode that you finished. It's it's kind of messing with my head. Yeah, yeah, I I can see that. So it's, it's a little stilted. <laughs> we don't have our flow. We're we're starting at the end today, and it's strange. We haven't had but, the warm up. Really, all our episodes are just a warm up for our outro. <laughs> well, that's that that doesn't say a lot about the episode then. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I guess on that note, just a reminder, we have a discord now it's in full swing. We've got a bunch of people on there. 
Um, starting to have some really interesting discussions, and we want you all to be a part of it. The link for the the Discord invite is down in the the episode description or the show notes or whatever you want to call it. If you want to reach out to me specifically on the Discord, my username is spamfo s p a m f a u x. And Chase, what's yours? Mine is Swedish fish. Fish the the hacking way, not yeah, the, the hacking way or the, the band, animal. not the animal. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, reach out to us there. We've got a channel dedicated to the podcast, and I'm actually trying to find people who, or if there's not, that sounds more desperate than I am actually. I'm, you know, <laughs> I've got it, an open discussion for people who are interested in getting stickers sent to them. So that's another means if you would like some stickers and don't have Twitter or don't feel like using Twitter, hop on Discord and touch base with me, and I can get some sent out to you. In the time leading up to season two launching, we'll be dropping some special content into the podcast Discord channel. Yeah, at least we aim to. <laughs> That's our goal. <laughs> um, and also make sure you guys follow us on Twitter. We are at anyport underscore pod and follow Black Lantern Securities Twitter at Black Lantern. Un- nope, that's not right at all. At Black Lantern Security LLC. I've done this for 11 episodes. I should be good at it by now. I am not. <laughs> it's okay, buddy. There's always season two. Unless I get recasted. Um, I think I'm in more danger than that than you. <laughs> uh, anyways, reach out on Twitter if you guys have any questions, comments, or have anything you just want us to talk about. Um, yeah. Or just want to talk to us. We're, we're there. We're always there. Yeah, and be sure to tune into the last half of this episode. Maybe we'll find out something like maybe Sam will figure out how to end an episode. Maybe it turns out I secretly made the Kaseya ransomware. Maybe we all talk more about bourbon. You know, you never know. We'll see. <laughs> or none of those are the case. Who knows? Speaking of my inability to end an episode, we're at that point where I'm going to flounder for a couple of seconds trying to figure out how to end this. Yes. And ultimately, I just want to thank you all for listening. We've really appreciated the support we've gotten this season and look forward to hopefully accomplishing some of the goals we're, we're setting up for season two. 